Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. I'm praying that, that this uh, time together will <clears throat> maybe be a time that you will be surprised again. And um, something would break in and change some things in you. Uh, my name is Ryan, and um, I consider myself somewhat mentally healthy and uh, educated. Yeah, somewhat. How about mentally human? There we go, <laughs> mentally human. Uh, somewhat uh, educated, rational, uh, pretty well read, and I, I've based my entire life on the life, death, and resurrection of a traveling Jewish rabbi named Jesus. And that might sound somewhat shocking. Um, in, in a room, like, there was a lot more people in the last gathering, and so I saw more shocked faces then. <laughs> um, but you're here, and this isn't a bait and switch, although... There's some pretty good grocery store donuts downstairs, and you actually have to finish them off before you can leave. Um, and we have good coffee, but this isn't meant to be a bait and switch. This is just me starting off with a statement that I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe it was a real historical event, and I believe it matters. And I could spend a whole bunch of time going through the evidence with you, and I could spend a lot of time, we could, we could go through it. And I think it's pretty compelling. I think it's not proof, but I think it's really compelling. But I don't think you're going to make decisions in your life, and I don't think I make decisions in my life based on a whole bunch of rational thought and a whole bunch of data and a whole bunch of just cold, hard facts. I actually think that, and I think the studies show that most of us make really important decisions in our life based on the moments of clarity, based on mis mysterious moments of mystical kind of experience in the sense that you look back on the major experiences and the major uh, decisions in your life and most of them weren't data-driven. I mean, think about it, there was, when you fell in love, if you've fallen in love before, when you fell in love, there was this, it wasn't, it wasn't like buying a car, hopefully. <laughs> It had more to do with you just can't shake what you feel, that there's this person that has captivated you. Or maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, like at a, on a fireside kind of situation where you're around a campfire and the stars above and you just have this overwhelming sense that, yes, you are supposed to move and take on this new job, Right? that there is evidence and there's data and there's ideas behind these decisions, but ultimately it's like a feeling. Or maybe like that moment you're in your boss's office and you're like, yep, it's time for me to leave. It's time for me to go. I mean, you just, you can't explain it. Something just clicked, right? Where you live, who you love, and what you do. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. You trust in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, this traveling Jewish rabbi. 
I did that not because I watched the trial tapes or interrogated the evidence. Um, For me, it was moments in my life, like my longings, my sense of need and emptiness, all intersected with the story of Jesus, his life, his teachings, and even his resurrection. And it's the single greatest explanation for my experience, the experiences I've had, and the experience I had all throughout my life, through all the ups and downs. And so here we are in another Easter, and let's be real, maybe you're here, but you're just kind of passing through. You are like looking around going, this is not the kind of party I'm going to get too comfortable at. That's okay. We got donuts for you too. (laughs) You're welcome to be here. But maybe you're here and the resurrection is really personal to you. Maybe it's changed things for me. Maybe it's reformed things in you. And it's begun to heal you. And you're here today with a heart kind of throbbing inside of your chest with gratitude and joy. And so if that's you, I just want to say, Happy Easter, He has risen. That's right. And we read that story out of John 20, um, and it's just a fascinating story. It's just a, it's a story. It's like, this is what happened, right? I mean, think about it. If you're these people who are close to Jesus, they watched him die on Friday, He's, and they all scattered. And then on Saturday, they, they mourned and they hid. And then on Sunday, we read the account of this foot race. And I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of scripture because John's writing it and John beat Peter to the tomb and he has to let everybody know. I just, I love it. And that Jesus loved him, you know, uh, you know. And we celebrate today and it's something that happened, it's something that has happened in the past. And as a result, the world is now different and our present reality can be different, and the future will be, will be different. And that is good news. And that's what, what we call the gospel. There's no better place to look at this than a little letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a group of uh, people who lived in a crazy town called Corinth. And he, there's a passage of his letter. It goes like this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Now, this is a word, the gospel is euangelion. It's a Greek word that actually has a very cultural, it's stuck in Roman culture. Roman culture, it was about announcing a victory. And they would send heralds to towns and they would say, Caesar has won. And it, that's what gospel means. And so the, the, the early church kind of co-opted that that little word, that little statement. He says, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Basically, this good news, this announcement, this victorious announcement is what you've built your whole life on. He says, by this gospel, you are saved. You are healed. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. I mean, this is the most important thing. And he's going to summarize it in these next few lines. He says this, that Christ died for your sins 
for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though, have, though some have fallen asleep. And that, that's just a Christian idiom for, for death. And I want to share with you today a phrase that will help you kind of unpack what Paul is talking about here. And the phrase is a two-word phrase, eschatological hope. Uh, say it with me. <laughs> eschatological hope. Now, you can drop that at Easter dinner today and <laughs> see what happens. But today I'm going to explain this to you with uh, uh, two very simple movements. It's the difference between being pushed and being pulled. Being pushed and being pulled. It goes like this. Most of the time in our lives, our past pushes us from behind. Okay? Meaning that the things that have happened to you, your past hurts, your past losses, shame, failures, mistakes, regrets, whatever... And, and let's talk about trauma too, all of that pushes you from behind. And these things tend to push us into our future from behind. What we have done and what has happened to us is the energy that pushes us through life. It guides our decisions. It informs our longings. It causes us to live out of fear, sometimes in self-protection. I mean, this is just how it works. And when our past pushes us from behind into our future, all of our thinking and our reaction, okay, happens in light of that filter of that compounded force that pushes us forward. And we say things, we find ourselves saying things to ourselves like, this will just end up like last time. Or, this person is probably going to leave me too. They'll probably just reject me. Or the big one is, this is just who I am. And this can be the very opposite of hope. And because of the pushing that we feel in our stories, some of us feel really hopeless. This sense of inevitability that we feel like we're just being pushed into the future and there's nothing we can do about it. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, the difference between hoping and planning is planning is working out our past and present and moving that into the future, trying to control the future or trying to anticipate it so we're ready for it. We're really good at planning. And a lot of us plan out of a sense of, um, it's just unconscious, right? We try, we're unconsciously trying to guard ourselves, protect ourselves, or go around things because of what our past has done. It has pushed us. But hope is not planning. Hope is not planning at all. So Paul highlights two problems in that little passage I read. Two problems that all of us face. The first one is in, in, internal, and the second one is terminal. Paul writes this, he says, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 
Now, that word sin is a tricky one. It's been abused and heavy-handed, used and misused, and for some it may kind of reek of a, you might have some emotional triggers and baggage with that one. But if you study the human origin story in the scriptures, you find that at the base level for all of us, there is this instinct in all of us to hide. To hide ourselves, the most important parts of ourselves, to hide ourselves. And it's the most ancient of instincts. And the fact is that our internal problems are all, in a sense, under a banner of shame. And we're fragile, actual fragile and fearful until we're actually known. And we learn to cloak all this internal stuff, all the stuff that pushes us from behind. We learn to cloak it. We're really good at disguising. And we put on sophisticated disguises. And we all have the similar blend of symptoms, things like fear, right? We all have, in a sense, a inner insecurity that never really lets us be fully known. And I don't care how old you are. Or we have this unchecked ambition inside of us that we're always trying to prove something to ourselves or to somebody else. And it may be somebody else that really didn't want us to prove that. We just thought they did. Might be resentment, that inner anger that we all have. Some of it comes out in kind of ragey ways. Some of it stays more hidden and judgmental of people. (laughs) No, never, right, Chris? Then there's that loneliness, that search for intimacy that drives us to do things and to be things that we're not meant to be. That undiscerning demand for companionship, that sexual addiction, that staying socially busy and connected to people because we feel like that makes us whole. And here's all, how all that tends to work for me. And it may probably do the same for you. The way I deal with this internal problem is that I select a part of my life, okay? I elevate it, and then I ask that part of my life to carry the weight of my significance. (laughs) And if you're anything like me, you've probably found out that that doesn't work so well. (laughs) It's great. So, for instance, I'll take my career or my social life or my kids or my appearance or a sense of adventure or whatever, and then that becomes a vehicle for me to affirm my importance. And this is just this an attempt to talk about that human origin story again, how we were created to be fully flourishing human beings. It's my attempt to return to that without dealing with God at all. And so sin really is trying, me trying to meet my deepest needs by my own resources. Or as one scholar put it, disordered desire. And it never works. It's pushing us forward. It's pushing me forward. It holds me captive. It pushes me from behind. And we never grow out of it. We just find new ways to hide it. And it can be, sin can be as broad as mass graves in Ukraine, school shootings, and all the isms you can think of. 
And it can also be secret addictions, self-loathing, and unchecked pride. And the fight of our lives is to recover our original identity. And using any identity or desire other than God is what, Christ, what, what Scripture calls sin. And that's not a conservative religious idea. Actually, Freud and Plato and Jesus all agreed on this one. They just had different outcomes. And so the, uh, switch the vocabulary if you like. If you don't like the word sin, that's fine. Switch the vocabulary if you like, but it's just a diagnosis. Because sin is not an accusation or a condemnation or a, or a moral theory. It's a diagnosis. And so it's a trip to the doctor and you discover, oh, there's a name for this thing I carry. There's this name for this pushing me. And the trouble with pretending that I'm well when I have all the symptoms is I miss out on the healing. When I pretend I don't have the symptoms. And sin is not about God with an annoyingly narrow moral framework or anything like that. God's actively about my deepest kind of healing. He's about liberating freedom and the fullest kind of living. And that's why Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. To set us free from the push. That's the internal. Now the terminal. The terminal is that the time we all come to a place in, in our lives where we need answers. That things don't make sense. And it usually happens when we find ourselves staring into an open grave. And we ask questions like, what does this mean? What comes next? Why did this have to happen? Um, last fall, I came out of a summer of a wonderful, restful summer um, to a to a quick immersion into um, something painful, and I got called into Lutheran Hospital, trauma room number one, and I stood at the feet of a fallen police officer in the, in the bed with all of his friends around. And there were tears. And it, smell, it smelled like blood. And it was 2.30 in the morning. And since then, I've had a number of conversations with these officers. And they have questions like, how is it that I can have a conversation with Dylan and 20, min 20 minutes later, he's dead. Right? And the wound is still so fresh. And I can be in a police officer, I can be in a car with another officer. We drive by the scene in daylight. And they can pick out all the exact places in the, that they were, that everybody was. And they can sit in that moment. And there's been so many prayers with more questions than answers in them. That's the terminal. And we're tempted at times, and I'm tempted all the time, to not think about the terminal. To avoid it. Because it's not comfortable. In ancient Rome, they passed a law that no one could be buried within the city limits. 
because they were running out of space, and let's just be honest, it's uncomfortable. So they founded the city called the Necropolis, the city of the dead. It was outside of the city. That's, we just send the dead out there. <laughs> we don't want to deal with it. Now, Rome may have been the first society to learn how to shield themselves from death and dealing with death, but they weren't the last. We're pretty good at it. Like, we're real good at it. We have people take care of the bodies. We don't even take care of our own dead bodies anymore. We uh, try to keep ourselves alive longer than we should. Um, We spend a lot of time avoiding people who've experienced loss. And conveniently, we may have come up with our own modern necropolis. But maybe we should be like the Stoic philosophers. The Stoic philosophers had this thing they did called the premeditation of evils or premeditatio malorum. I still can't say it. Second service, I still can't say it. It's this exercise of trying to imagine all the things that could go wrong in your life or be taken away from you because it helps prepare you for life's inevitable setbacks. Premeditation of evils. But we replace that in our world, in our little modern Western world. We replace that. Instead of doing that, we just pretend that we're all going to be okay and we'll cross the death bridge from the movie Coco when we come to it. Now, I blew that at the first gathering. I thought it was Encanto, but it's Coco. And everybody stared at me like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Now, remember the phrase we talked about at the beginning, eschatological hope. Eschatological hope, what is it? It's being pulled instead of being pushed. It's the hope that, God, that God's good future is actually pulling us into his promises. That the energy that is moving us into a better future is the resurrection of Jesus, and it's pulling us forward. And the resurrection is the whole point. It's the whole focus. What resurrection did and what it, we are supposed to let it do is pull us into God's new reality. Paul says this in verse 20, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, terminal problem. (laughs) So in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And that first fruits is a metaphor. It's an agrarian metaphor. It's the first bud on the tree. It's the first sign of life coming up from the ground. That there is a spring that is coming. That this is not an eternal winter. And it pulls us into the future. So the energy of your past your trauma, your regret, your shame that has pushed you along is no longer significant 
you get pulled into God's future. And you might be saying, okay, well, what kind of future does the resurrection pull us into? Paul says this. He says, then the end will come. And the word end there is the word telos in Greek. And it doesn't mean like an apocalyptic explosive ending. It means this, does, this, this ending has an ultimate purpose to it. It has a, a finality, a beautiful finality to it. And it's not about the end of the world. It's about the end of a world, a schema, a, a, a world of power and disease and injustice and despair and race hatred and death, where all the isms are snuffed out. And he says, the telos will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all the enemies, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This means that what resurrection does and what we're supposed to let it do is pull us forward into God's new reality where there is forgiveness to all and death is not the end and the resurrection is that future hope. Frederick Buchner said that resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. This is like that premeditation of evils. Like think about the worst thing that has happened to you. It is not the last thing. And so to end, the invitation for you is to join in the story of Jesus to surrender your life to, to the pull and to be free of the push. The invitation for you and I is the same pattern that Jesus went through, death, burial, and resurrection. Death, laying down, surrendering your old pattern of life that is kind of tied in and matches the old world dying away, Burial, you wait, you trust that you are in the love of God, that one day this resurrection will happen, and then resurrection, a new life where healing can begin, and it can begin now. It starts now. Well, I'm going to close. If you've uh, been around here for a bit, you know I like to do some nerdy history. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. And if you've never, uh, if you need a baby name, there's some folks looking for baby names. Jürgen. Jürgen Moltmann was born in Hamburg, Germany. And when he was 16, he was drafted into the German army during World War II. And he was handed, like every German soldier, he was handed something called the Iron Rations. The Iron Rations were uh, a number of things, but two of the things in it were the, the poems of a, of a poet, a German poet named Goethe, and uh, the writings of a, of a chipper young philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. If you're not familiar with Nietzsche, he's, that was a joke him being chipper. <laughs> so these are the things he took into war with him. He worked in an anti-aircraft battery during the Royal Air Force bombing of Hamburg, Germany, his hometown. 
he was shooting up at these bombers coming in, and these bombers were decimating Hamburg. If you know the story of Hamburg, Germany, 40,000 people died in this bombing. And he lost his friend next to him. And then he was ordered to the front lines. If, you know, you make matters worse, then he goes to the front lines and he finally is, uh, he surrenders in 1945, before the end of the war, he surrenders in the dark to the first British shoulder he comes across. And for the next three years, he goes from, con- from uh, not concentration camp, that's a different thing, uh, prisoner of war camp to prisoner of war camp. And when he's in Belgium in a prisoner of war camp, there's not much to do. And he, he talks about how all of his friends, all of the people he's with, are just devastated and tormented by the memories and what he calls the memories and the gnawing thoughts. He just tormented. And Moltmann claims that after, he just claims that he has lost all hope at this point, and he's lost all confidence in German culture because of the atrocities of Auschwitz in the different concentration camps, which the guards at the Belgian prisoner of war camp, they would post pictures of Auschwitz to just push that shame even further into the POWs. And Moltmann claimed his shame was so great that he often felt like he would have rather died with all of his comrades than to live the face what their nation had done. It was his past pushing him forward. Moltmann ran into a group of Jesus followers who gave him a little pocket Bible, New Testament in German, New Testament and the Psalms. And he began to read it. And then he experienced, after he moved, he was moved from Belgium to Scotland. And he experienced like this city, this little small town. And all the residents welcomed them and and poured out hospitality on these German soldiers. And he says those two things, he's like, that's how I know that I didn't find Christ, he found me. And he had a moment of clarity. And today, Jürgen Moltmann is 98. And he lives in Hamburg, Germany. And he wrote, um, after all the hell he experienced, all the shame that came with it, he wrote uh, a book, a number of books, a number of theologies, but he wrote a book called the The A Theology of Hope. And near the beginning, he writes this, kind of a long quote, but I think you're gonna enjoy it. He said, to believe does does in fact mean to cross and transcend bounds, to be engaged in an exodus. Yet this happens in a way that does not suppress or skip the unpleasant realities. Death is real death, and decay is putrefying decay. Guilt means guilt, and suffering remains even for the believer, a cry to which there is no ready-made answer. Faith does not overstep these realities into a heavenly utopia, does not dream itself into a reality of a different kind. It can overstep the bounds of life, 
with their closed wall of suffering, guilt, and death only at the point where they have, in actual fact, been broken through. It is only in following the Christ who was raised from suffering, from a God-forsaken death, and from the grave that it gains an open prospect in which there is nothing more to oppress us. A view of the realm of freedom and of joy where the bounds that mark the end of all human hopes are broken through in the raising of the crucified one, their faith can and must expand into hope. That's the invitation for us today. To say yes to that. John called it life that is truly life. Jesus called it eternal life. Better translation in Greek is the life of the age to come. So I want you to hear me today before we pray. I'm not merely trying to get you to believe something for the first time. I want to encourage you to trust and live something for the rest of your time. And that's what this is. Let me pray. God, this morning we celebrate what you've done for us. Your life, your teachings, your death, the burial, the resurrection, all means something to us. You call us by our names. You find us like you found Jürgen. But belief is, like he said, uh, a step of, of faith. It's a step of exodus. It's a surrendering. To hook into the line that pulls us into a better future. And for some of us in the room, I, we're just so very keenly aware of what it's like to be pushed through life. to make decisions and to make choices. But it feels like it's just us being pushed through. But God, you want to pull us into your future. And that's what this day is a celebration of. Otherwise, we're stuck. Otherwise, we're stuck just being pushed. It's just fate. It's fatalistic. But you've rescued us. And God, if there's anybody in this room that wants to experience what life being pulled into your resurrection is like, and let go of being pushed, may they surrender that today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's stand together. I want to stand. You get stand up again. And here's what I want to do. If you've had a moment of clarity, uh, has Jesus found you like Jürgen? <laughs> Have you decided to be pulled and not pushed? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I'm going to give out my personal cell phone number. Here it's going to go. There it is. Yeah, this is going to be a mistake, I'm sure. But a couple high school kids are like, yeah, we're going to text you and mess with you. And I'm like, okay, that's not the point. The point is this. 
instead of doing like a hand raise thing or whatever, or an altar call kind of thing or whatever that you're maybe used to, if you're like, I had a moment of clarity and I want to talk about it. Man, that's, that's what I'd love to talk about. <laughs> I would love to talk about that with you. I would love to talk about a God who pulls us and rescues us from being pushed. So if you want to do coffee, if you want to do a beer, I don't know if I can say that in church, I just did, whatever, I just, I want to hear your story. I want to talk about how your story intersects with this story of Jesus. So as you go, my encouragement to you today, live the resurrection. Live as if you're being pulled into a future with no more isms and no more suffering and no more death, even though the reality around you is still that way. God has set you free and you are welcomed into his eternity. Amen. Now eat every donut in this building. <laughs> <laughs>